everybody, and welcome back to Issue by Issue, a DC Comics completionist podcast where we're taking you and, and anyone else who will listen uh, through the ages of DC Comics one issue at a time, starting at the very beginning, Action Comics number one. Uh, episode 12, uh, it's a big one, it's a very big one. The episode itself, not a very big one, but uh, the issue, one of the issues that we'll be covering, very, very big. Uh, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, before that, I just want to kind of maybe pull the curtain away a little bit uh, and tell you uh, some sad news. Uh, so as a part of this show, I use a very, very um, helpful website uh, called Mike's Amazing World of Comics. It is a basically a huge repository of, of old school comics, golden age comics like and leading up to the, you know, closer to the present too. Uh, I don't know if it's been updated for a while because Mike, the the operator of the website, kind of you know fell off. It's it's a big job to constantly be updating issues of comics and who wrote them and what happens in them and all that kind of stuff. The the golden age stuff is very very thorough, and so I use it a lot on on this show and on IBI Crisis. Uh, and some sad news is that Mike, uh, the operator of the website, has passed away. Uh, and I just wanted to, to put that out there because he's a, I, I think he's very important. He's important to me. He's important to the show. Um, uh, I do just want to shout out Mike and his uh, great website that I really, really enjoy uh, and is very, very helpful to the show. And uh, I am sorry for his uh, for his family's loss. And uh, and I hope things are going well for them. Uh, but let's talk about this week's episode. Uh, we will be only be covering two issues this time. Normally we cover three if you know anything about the show. Uh, well, actually, originally we were covering five, but that's a lot, uh, especially as you know, c- the stories start to get more detailed. But uh, normally in this uh, most more recent time, we've only been covering three. Uh, but this time we're only covering two because one of them is Batman number one, uh, the first comic book series completely 100% dedicated to Batman and Batman stories. Very similar to Superman, which at, at this point has like, I don't know, like a handful of issues out because it's only quarterly uh, like Batman will also be until eventually. It's not quarterly and it's monthly uh, like we know today. But so that one has six Batman stories in it. So that's kind of like two issues of, say, Adventure Comics or Flash Comics or, you know, as as stories start to expand. And also uh, our second issue uh, is More Fun Comics number 56, where we will have to talk about uh, briefly, we're not going to go into a story and I'll explain why the introduction of a new character. Um, but Let's set the scene, as we always do, with some real-world history about what was happening in the world when these issues were coming out. These issues came out on April 25th, 1940, and May 2nd, 1940. So let's talk about what was going on uh, when that was. Uh, So April 25th, uh, women gained the right to vote in the Canadian province of Quebec, the last province to grant women's suffrage. Quebec has always been a sort of, you know, a loner or or more... uh, isolated ideologically and culturally from the rest of Canada because it is French in origin. Uh, I mean, they speak a dialect of French called Quebecois. They were originally founded by the French and then given given to the British, you know, because of war, um, as, you know, as empires used to do. Women in the rest of Canada, all the other provinces, uh, got the vote, got suffrage in 1917 to 1919. Obviously, every province, you know, 
passed it at different times. And if you know anything about American history, uh, American women got the right to vote in 1920. So uh, Quebec is a little far off from the rest of North America, although Mexico... Uh, gave uh, women the right to vote in uh, 1953. So really Mexico is the last one to uh, pass women's suffrage in North America. But uh, so there you go. There's that. Uh, Also on that same day, April 25th, Al Pacino, famous actor, uh, Don Cacino, if you know him from from his very famous uh, Dunkin' Donuts commercial in a very bad movie. But uh, he was born. Uh, on this day, on this date, in uh, Manhattan, New York. April 27th, Heinrich Himmler ordered the creation of a new concentration camp at, I'm going to butcher this, Auschwitz, oh gosh, O-S-W-I-E-C-I-M, and the S has an apostrophe and the E has a little tail. Um, This is, in German, it's known as Auschwitz, uh, one of the most famous Uh, concentration camps, or I should say infamous concentration camps uh, from the Nazi regime. April 25th, the U.S. Supreme Court decided Thornhill versus Alabama. To boil down this uh, decision into its simplest terms, it it basically included peaceful picketing, uh, so striking peacefully uh, for labor rights and stuff like that. It added it into the the First Amendment, uh, the list of protections, uh, the right to free speech, uh, picketing, striking, that kind of stuff was deemed free speech. And as, a, as part of that, the government couldn't restrict what, uh, what someone, how someone does that. If someone does that, uh, state governments, federal governments, governments of any kind, because uh, they all have to follow the Bill of Rights. That's, that's a requirement. So that's good. That's really good for, for labor uh, movements and a lot of the rights we have today from from striking unions. Um, April 30th, Tex Carlton of the Brooklyn Dodgers pitched a 3-0 no-hitter against the Cincinnati Reds. A no-hitter is very, very difficult because the odds that some batter is going to hit it is, is, is very high. And so a no-hitter when it happens is a very big deal. I'm not a big baseball fan, but I do know that about baseball. Is that no-hitters are uh, rare and uh, are, are, are super cool. Uh, if you don't, I guess if you like the uh, pitching part of baseball, if you like like the running around and like the throwing the ball and stuff, it, I guess they're not fun then that way. So uh, I guess take take that with a grain of salt. Uh, May 1st, uh, Swedish Prime Minister Per Albin Hansen declared that Sweden would defend its neutrality with all the means in our power. Uh, we'll see how that ends up uh, later on. But, uh, but good good for them, uh, you know. I actually, well, no, because, like, there's a problem with neutrality in, in big conflicts like this. It's like, you know, if you're, what is that saying? It's like if you choose to be neutral, you're siding with the aggressors, I guess. Um, uh, but, uh, well, we're not here to, this isn't a philosophy podcast, so we'll uh, we'll move on. Let's get into the issues, and let's start off with Batman number one. Like I said, uh, this is a all-Batman, all-the-time issue, not issue, series. And um, unlike the Superman title that has a similar bent to it, you know, all-Superman, this one doesn't reprint stories. 
from earlier issues of Detective Comics. Uh, I don't know. I don't believe Batman had a like a newspaper strip. So probably because of the use of guns and all the killing. Uh, so it didn't reprint anything from the newspaper strip like that. It's just all original stories from Bill Finger and Bob Kane. Obviously, for a long time, it was just Bob Kane. But we now know that Bill Finger uh, wrote a lot, wrote a lot, and made a lot of these decisions uh, creatively. And uh, he finally gets the, you know, recognition that he deserves uh, because because that's important. So let's talk about it. April twenty fifth, nineteen forty, is the release date, and the cover date is spring nineteen forty quarterly, just like Superman. Uh, and there are a couple debuts in this issue. It's a very, very important issue in the Batman mythos uh, and really the DC universe as a whole because it introduces, introduces Batman's greatest enemy, some would argue, and uh, Batman's uh, greatest love. Uh, some people would also argue that. Uh, it introduces the Joker and it introduces Catwoman, where in this one she is known as simply the Cat. Uh, this issue uh, is written by Bill Finger and Bob Kane and, and drawn by uh, Bob Kane. So let's get into the first story, which is uh, the story that involves the Joker, the introduction of the Joker. Uh, but before that, I should say there is a quick two-page, three-page, two-page origin of Batman, his origin story that's been reprinted from previous Detective Comics. Uh, it's the the one where he goes, you know, his parents are his classic. His parents are killed. He then goes through a training regimen. He makes a police, you know, he makes a promise uh, on his knees by his bed with a candle in the background, uh, and then he becomes the Batman. Uh, the bat flies in the window. All the classic things from the Batman origin story. But you know, we've already heard that, so we'll move on. We then get to the sort of like first page where it has the blurb. And I want to talk about two things on this page. One is the drawing of the Joker. It's the most ridiculous drawing I've ever seen. Uh, I'm going to post a picture of it because it is ridiculous. Uh, it's just I don't. It's just like the way the Joker is looking, the way his face is shaped, the way his head is shaped. Um, it's just it's just very odd. He's holding you know three cards. One's a Joker card. One's a Batman card. And one's a Robin card from your standard deck of playing cards. Uh, but now let's talk about the sort of short paragraph that's at the beginning of all these Golden Age comics, or a lot of them, where it kind of explains this, you know, sets the scene a bit. I'll just read it verbatim. Uh, Once again, a master criminal stalks the city streets, a criminal weaving a web of death about him, leaving stricken victims behind wearing a ghastly clown's grin, the sign of death from the Joker. Only two dare to oppose him, Batman and Robin the Boy Wonder. Two, to battle the grim jester called the Joker. Because he they were like, do you think they're, they'll get that he's called the Joker? I don't know. Let's put a second instance of us declaring that this man is known as the Joker. And then it says, a battle of wits with swift death, the only compromise. Now, I will, I will talk about this. Um, I would not call this adventure, this um, battle, to be a battle of wits. Um... So let's just, we'll just leave it at that. And you can decide for yourself if it's a battle of wits. I don't think so. But um, I don't really think a lot of these Golden Age stories are very, you know, battle of wits. But uh, we cut to uh, an older couple. They're listening to the radio because that's what people did back then. TV wasn't a thing or wasn't a very big thing. 
And they're talking about how peaceful it is to sit at home and listen to the radio. When suddenly, the radio cuts out, and a monotone voice drones over the speaker, Tonight, at precisely 12 o'clock midnight, I will kill Henry Claridge and steal the Claridge diamond. Do not try to stop me. The Joker has spoken. Wouldn't that be so sick to have, like, a stone named after you? I mean, I find the idea of precious gems to be ridiculous because they don't do anything, most of them. They're just, you know, a human construct that they have value. But, like, wouldn't it be cool to have one that's, like, this one? Oh, this is the this is the buyer's, you know, a diamond. I, I do think that'd be, that'd be kind of cool. Um, so, but other than that, other than that, useless and, uh, have no, no real purpose. Uh, so that's bad. He's just said he's going to kill a rich person and Batman loves to protect rich people. So he'll probably be right on it, right? No, he won't. He won't be. Uh, uh, this Mr. Claridge, this Robert Henry Claridge. I don't know why I said Robert. His Henry Claridge. He's a millionaire. Uh, he goes to the police and they say, you know, we're going to, we're going to protect you rich man because because you're rich and that makes you important they go to his house and they just basically stand in his living room like a bunch of cops in a circle around him and they're just waiting for midnight to come around and you know midnight comes around and he and this you know henry claire just like i'm still alive i'm not dead i'm i'm safe and suddenly he collapses and dies, and when the police check his body, he has this very wide, very scary-looking grin on his face, very Joker-like. Uh, so that's that's good, but that's actually bad. Sorry, I said good. It's bad, um, but at least uh, the Joker didn't steal the diamond. It's impossible. There was a bunch of police in the room. How would he do it? They checked the safe, and diamond's still there. But wait a minute, what's that? This isn't a diamond. This is glass. So he did steal it. How? But he left his calling card. A Joker card. A car, a literal card uh, with a Joker face on it. Um, we then cut to not far away, it says, sits a man. A man with a changeless mask-like face, but for the eyes. Burning, hate-filled eyes. We then see a, a guy that, that looks, you know, a lot like the Joker, but if you told me it was Peter Cushing with uh with green hair and a purple suit on and his face painted white i'd believe you because it looks a heck of a lot like peter cushing the man who plays uh moff tarkin in no not moff yeah moff tarkin in star wars um i will be i will be posting a comparison picture you decide uh for yourself whether or not i'm in crazy but like the, especially the side profile we see of him i'm like dang that's peter cushing and uh I, for as far as i know i don't believe they based his appearance on peter cushing it'd be weird because at this time peter cushing was uh, like 37 nope 27 i got that he's born in 1913 and it's 1940 now so uh he would be um oh he died like two months after i was born r.i.p peter cushing uh but it's not peter cushing it's the Joker, and he basically explains to no one, to himself, uh, to us, obviously. He's explaining it to us, being a narrator, but he explains to the room that he killed um, Claridge. No, Claridge, yes. Uh, by injecting him last night at midnight with a chemical that will kill him in 24 hours. Now, this is sort of the beginning of, of the Joker being a 
like a master chemist, uh, which we've seen off and on over the years. Uh, sometimes he's just a psychopath that dresses like a clown, or kind of, not even like a clown at all. Um, but uh, he, it's, it's, it's sometimes we forget that he is a master chemist. Uh, and then he says that he, at that same time, he stole the diamond and replaced it with glass. So that's how, that's how he did it, and that's the prediction. He was predicting a crime that had already been done, just hadn't taken effect yet. We then cut to uh, young Dick Grayson and uh, his mentor, Bruce Wayne. They're sitting in their smoking jackets, uh, and Bruce Wayne is smoking a pipe, and the newspapers are talking about this, you know, crime and the radios are talking about it and dick asks bruce but bruce why don't we take a shot at this joker guy and bruce kind of foreshadowing the fact that he's in the future just going to repeatedly let the joker murder everybody um over and over and over again he says not yet dick the time isn't right but when we do dot 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 uh so he's just like no it's not time yet doesn't doesn't feel right uh i just i feel like i need i need him to murder at least one more person. And then, ho ho, and then some things will happen. The, uh, another night in the near future, uh, the radio is cut off again and the voice uh, comes over and says, tonight in exactly one hour, I will kill Jay Wilde and steal the Ronker's Ruby. The Joker has spoken. What a Buckwild name for a Ruby. Ronker's Ruby. Who's Ronker? And it's not even possessive. It's just Ronker's. S, no apostrophe S, Ronker's Ruby. We then cut to the similar sort of scene that we saw in the previous murder. Uh, the police are all at this guy's house. They're, you know, watching him. They're surrounding him so that the Joker can't get to him. And, you know, he's freaking out. He's like, I'm going to die. In five minutes, I'm going to die. And then finally, the hour has, you know, passed. And he says, 10, it's 10. It's going to happen now. The clock is ticking, my life away. He then screams, uh, a, st a strangled scream, and passes out dead. Uh, passes out dead. Collapses dead. Uh, then a strange gas fills the room, and out from a suit of armor that was standing in the corner, because he's a rich guy, so he owns a suit of armor, uh, taking the helmet off comes the Joker, and he has a, a sort of gas gun in his hand very similar to sandman and crimson avenger uh gas guns really all the rage in 1940 you gotta get yourself one of these gas guns it change your world change your life either sets you down the path of heroism or villainy no one knows which uh and basically he explains that he shot a dart at this man's neck uh with concentrated venom joker venom on the dart and the gas is a short-term paralytic uh, that gives the person affected by it the, the Joker, Richter, Grin, and, uh, but just paralyzes him, doesn't kill him. Uh, why the Joker would care about only killing this one person and not everybody there? I don't know. Uh, this Joker, while a psychopath, is like, I only kill who I say I'm going to kill. Uh, very, very, very uh, dead shot in that way. It's like, I only kill who I'm paid to kill. We then cut to a different kind of uh, locale, not the, the house of a rich man, but the a, a den of scum and villainy. Uh, a bunch of crooks are in a sort of hangout, and they're talking about how the Joker is cutting in on their scores, like they were going to go after the Ronker's Ruby. 
So this guy, Brute Nelson, which like, you're really setting him up for failure by giving him a name like Brute. Like, come on, why not something like Genius, Genius Nelson? And that way he's like, I'm going to dedicate myself to study and uh, academics. Nope, Brute Nelson. Uh, he has an idea, and he's going to. He wants his men to pass the word around that he is going to get the Joker, and that he thinks the Joker is a yeller rat, not yellow yeller, which you know really drives home the point that the Joker is a coward. This news of the the murder and the word on the street that Brute Nelson is looking for the Joker. <laughs> Batman says, okay, it's time. He's done enough murders for me to put on the cowl and uh, do something about this. Robin has to stay home. This is too dangerous for him. So uh, we then cut to that that night, or maybe a night in the near future, and Brute Nelson is sitting in his private home in the suburbs, and he's, you know, muttering to himself about when he gets the Joker that, you know, there'll be a joke, all right, and it'll be the Joker's death. And suddenly, uh, a voice comes through the door, and the door slams open, and it's the Joker, and he's, like, talking about me? And everyone's shocked. They say, the Joker. The brute, brute, brute yells out the Joker. Uh, when suddenly, a bunch of other doors in the house burst open, and Brute Nelson's men come in. It was a trap, you see. Uh, it was a classic trap, a classic spread the word about him being a yellow rat. Then he comes to my house thinking I'm alone, but I'm really not alone. All my men are here. Trap. Classic. Uh, not very, not a very, you know, rolls off the tongue sort of title, but a classic trap. Uh, and suddenly, standing at the top of the stairs is the Batman. He, he, you know, scraped his foot on the floor or made a big noise or something. And uh, he is spotted. So, the only action he can take is to throw himself head first down the stairs and uh, he does that and he's flying down the stairs and he lands on all of brute nelson's men he then for some reason beats them all up uh because i guess i mean it's very confusing because batman as we all know golden age batman kills a lot of people but he's like i can't i can't let you guys kill the joker because I love him? No, just kidding. That's later. That happens later. Uh, but so the Joker, you know, he says, I, I'm not going to use my, I'm not going to waste my usual Joker venom tricks on you, brute. And so instead he just shoots him. He just pumps him full of lead. And then the Joker runs out, hops in his convertible, uh, and uh, drives away. But the Batman gives chase and leaps onto uh, the back of the car. And he says a very funny quip. And says, hasn't he heard it? Hasn't he heard it's leap year? Get it? Because he leapt onto the onto the car. Uh, Joker notices the Batman on the back of his car and says, prepare to die. Uh, and, you know, uh, the Joker pulls out a gun. And Batman grabs it. And they're kind of fighting over it. And the car drives off the side of a bridge. Batman throws himself off the car along with the Joker uh, onto the safety of the bridge because can't let the Joker die, and they're fighting, uh, they're you know exchanging blows, all this kind of stuff. Although in these panels, it looks like Batman is getting his butt kicked. Uh, Joker punches him in the face, kicks him uh, in the face, toppling him over the bridge wall into the river below, 
And the Joker says, fight the Joker, will you? Let that be a lesson to you, a permanent lesson. And then he ha-ha-has. But uh, the Batman has survived this fall into the river. It has actually uh, woken him up from being knocked out, from being kicked in the face. Because no one tells you being kicked in the face is painful. And it can uh, knock you unconscious. Uh, Batman comes out of the river and then is uh, he heads home, dries off probably, maybe takes a hot bath. Uh, and uh, him and uh, Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson are you know sitting around the either the next night or some point in the future. It doesn't say. And uh, over the radio comes the Joker's voice and says, "Judge Drake, you once sent me to prison. For that you will die. Death will come at ten. The Joker has spoken." Uh, Dick comments that it's 8 o'clock now. That means that they have two hours before the judge is killed. Uh, We then cut to the judge's home, and an hour has passed. It's 9 o'clock. The uh, police chief is there uh, with the judge. They must be, you know, they work together. They're they're close uh, with each other. They're friends. And they're, they're, you know, going to play some cards, maybe some Go Fish maybe uh, some uh, other old-timey card games. Maybe they're going to play Gin Rummy or some other old-timey game that my grandparents would play, maybe. I don't know. I'm not a big card game guy. And, well, it's something with betting because the police chief says, it's your bet, judge. And the judge says, you win. I need the ace of spades to make the game. I don't, like I said, I'm not a card game person, so I'm not sure what game there's betting, but also you needing specific cards from specific suits to win. Uh, anyone who's a card game expert uh, who would know, you know, reach out. Tell me what's up. Uh, when the police chief pulls the next card, what card should that be? I'll give you a second to guess. That's right. It's the Joker card. And we then see a close-up of the police chief's face. And he's got that very scary Joker grin. And uh, he says, you can't win anyway. You see, I hold the winning card. Get it? Because it's the Joker card. He's the Joker. And uh, the judge is like, you, the police chief, the Joker. And uh, the police chief Joker says, yes, but not quite. The police chief, the real chief, is trussed up in the cellar. See, the Joker I know would have just killed the police chief and said, screw it, you know, I I, I don't care about him, uh, I'm going to kill him. But this Joker is like, I only kill who I say I'll kill. He's a man of honor. Uh, the, the clock, you know, strikes 10, and uh, the venom has affected the judge, leaving him with the Richter grin and death. Uh, the Joker, you know, kind of fixes his disguise and walks out and says, uh, Judge Drake is dead. The Joker has won again. Uh, watch the body. I'm going to headquarters. Uh, and the police, the police officer he talks to says, yes, of course, chief, you are my boss. Uh, and when we cut to outside the house where Robin is behind a tree and he is watching over the house. And he was told by Batman to follow anyone that comes out of the judge's house. And so Robin follows the police chief to this very spooky, deserted house. Normal stuff for police chiefs. And Robin is going to go in and investigate. He strikes a match. You know, he's holding it up. He's in a dark house. And he's like, it's quiet. Almost too quiet. 
uh, when uh, the police chief Joker comes up behind him and whacks him on the head. And immediately when I read this, I thought, well, this has a lot of parallels to Jason Todd uh, and his ultimate fate as Robin uh, at the hands of the Joker later on. Um, we're not quite, we're not there yet, and we won't be there for a while in issue by issue crisis, but we'll get there. Uh, and it's just weird how there are par parallels to this with that. So I wonder if maybe they took, I, I doubt it, but maybe. I mean, it's the first time the Joker appeared, so it's, it's just weirdly paralleled. Uh, we then cut to Batman, and you may be wondering, what was the Batman doing this whole time? Don't ask so many questions. They'll only lead you to ruin, uh, because it doesn't say. Um, but uh, he goes to the judge's house. Why wasn't he there in the first place? Don't know. And he's like, Robin's gone. He must have followed somebody. So I'll use this infrared scope to follow his footprints. And before you before you say anything, yes, it's like, well, that should really only, you know, track heat sources. Uh, and also that you can't just, like, shoot infrared beams at something and show heat. Uh, but don't, but it's actually a, the soles of both a Robin and Batman's boots are treated uh, with a luminous chemical that glows only in the light of the infrared ray. So he can see Robin's footsteps on the sidewalk. So he follows him. Uh, to this house and bursts through the window and inside is the Joker uh, with a tied up Robin. Uh, no crowbars around, so that's good. Uh, the Batman and the Joker fight and Batman punches the Joker into a table full of chemicals because the Joker is a chemist. Uh, and uh, the Joker quickly grabs his gas gun and sprays Batman, paralyzing him. Uh, with the Joker grin. Uh, and uh, the chemicals have lit a fire uh, in the house, so the Joker is going to leave the Batman and Robin to burn alive in this house, uh, which is quite the way to go. Uh, but because the Batman is the Batman, he has just amazing recuperative powers. He just He just willed himself out of the chemical effects of Joker Venom, something that he just learned about like a few days ago so batman's awesome i do like batman but that's silly um he unties or he grabs robin pulls him out of the house unties him and says to robin the joker is gone i'd give anything to know where and the Ro and robin being helpful says he boasted inside that he was going to get the cleopatra necklace next so that cleopatra necklace is owned by Otto drexel drexel we learn and so they're going to, you know, they're going to hoof it across town and, and get there uh, to the penthouse in the building across the street from where they are now after they've hoofed it. So they, they're going to they're going to, to catch the Joker in the act. Uh, we then cut to the Joker who's at the penthouse uh, and he's, he's ready, getting ready to enter. But before he can, the Batman jumps down from some scaffolding and says, still at it, eh? And uh, the Joker says die blast you die why don't you die because he thought this is the second time in this story that he thought that he has killed the batman uh, which is also foreshadowing their relationship for the you know next hundred years or so um well i guess it hasn't been a hundred years now has it because <laughs> it's not 2040 but someday 
the Joker then shoots all of his bullets, uh, and he's he's just confused why the Batman hasn't gone down, and the Batman thinks to himself, hasn't the Joker ever heard of a bulletproof vest? What what a concept. Um, it's, it's a good idea against people with guns. So sm- smart move, Batman. And so the Joker throws his gun at Batman and says, I'll kill you. But then instead of you know, attempting to kill him, he jumps from the penthouse onto the scaffolding of a building next door. That's a building that's being built. Uh, very reminiscent of Robin's first adventure. And he climbs up, and Robin's up there. And uh, he says, you too. And Robin says, right, Joker, I'm the ace in the hole. And then Robin be- does what Robin does and attempts to kill uh, men by kicking them off of uh, unfinished buildings, as he did in his first adventure. Bro's already got a body count. So he does. He sort of does a sort of leap, uh, somersault, and then kind of kicks up at the Joker's face, uh, pushing him backwards off of the building. And he's going to fall and, and, and die when he hits the ground, because that's what happens when you fall off of buildings. Uh, you die, typically. When uh, the Batman reaches his hand out and grabs Joker under the armpit, uh, likely uh, dislocating both of their shoulders, uh, and then and then pulls him up and knocks him out with one final blow. And we then see the next day in the Daily Star that the Batman has captured the Joker, uh, leaves Joker in front of police station, drives away. And then we cut to Bruce and Dick, and it's a, and Dick says, but what I'd like to know is how his victims' mouths turned up in that terrible grin. And Bruce says, some sort of drug that pulls the muscles of the face. The Joker was a clever but diabolical killer. Too clever and too deadly to be free. We then cut to a, a image of the Joker behind bars. It, he does still get to wear his purple suit. And gloves, which I, is, I guess nice, but I mean, that's not typically how prisons work. Uh, maybe they did back in the 40s. Maybe that was before, like, everyone's wearing orange or a colored jumpsuit. You're just wearing clothes. And, and, the, and the text box says, but even as Bruce speaks at the state prison, the Joker is planning, plotting for his escape. And the Joker says, they can't keep me here. I know of a way out. The Joker will yet have the last laugh. And that is the end. And, you know, it says, you know, tune in next time uh, and, and find Batman and Robin in the pages of Detective Comics. So that is the uh, that is the first appearance of the Joker in Batman number one. Uh, so let's move on to, well, I should say, I think it's a pretty good story. I think it, it really introduces a lot of the touchstones of the Joker right right from the jump, right? He's a, he's a chemist. He is a murderer. He doesn't care about murdering. Uh, and he, he likes to get the last laugh. Uh, and also Batman lets him kill people and he'll always escape prison. Uh, so I think that's really, that's really cool that even from the first story, a lot of the things we know about the Joker today are still the same. So that's cool. Now let's move on to the next story. And this next story has Batman dealing with one of his first recurring villains i would say uh i guess you could count dr death but that's just a two-part all like you know fully contained story this is more a villain that he thought that he had dealt with that has now come back and that is 
Professor uh, Hugo Strange or Dr. Hugo Strange, uh, however you want to call him. Professor Hugo Strange is his typical um, nom, de, nom de plume, nom de villainy. Uh, he escapes from jail and, uh, and does some mischief with some, uh, some chemistry and stuff. But So let's get into it. Uh, there's this really great image to start this story of Batman standing on a city street uh, looking up above these buildings at a giant man wearing a, a big, I don't know if they're called Panama hats or what, but it's a very big, wide-brimmed green hat. He's wearing a green shirt and a purple, like, overcoat. He looks, he's wearing the Joker colors, which uh, I think is copyright infringement, but uh, I guess maybe the Joker hasn't gotten around to to that yet, so he's allowed to do it. But it's just a really great image, and it does sort of, uh, not spoiler, but um, foreshadow what the Batman is going to be dealing with this one uh, in this story. Uh, because the story itself is called uh, Hugo Strange and the, oh, Professor Hugo Strange and the Monsters is what it's called. It wasn't originally given a title, it was given a title later in, in when it was encompassed in, in things like Batman the Golden Age Volume 1. Batman, Golden Age, Omnibus, Volume 1, stuff like that, is when these stories get actual titles. Before that, a lot of them, other than Zatara stories, they always get a title. But most stories, they don't get a title until later when they're, you know, put into a, an omnibus or a, or a big uh, collection. That they need a table of contents to have stories uh, organized by. Uh, so let's get into the story. Batman, as we know, captured Hugo Strange... Uh, in a previous adventure, uh, and we now see uh, Professor Hugo Strange and four or five other inmates uh, of, of where he's being held uh, breaking out, like causing a riot and taking hostages and getting out of prison. Uh, we see the next day that the public's being informed of this by a little newsy boy, you know, saying, extra, extra, Professor Strange escapes in prison break, you know, kind of standard stuff. For the time, for the era, for the tropes. Uh, and the next night, uh, the metrop in the Metropolis Insane Asylum, uh, Professor Hugo Strange uh, frees some prisoners, or some inmates, I guess, because uh, they're not necessarily uh, criminals. They're just um, afflicted with some type of mental illness. That means that they need to be in an asylum uh, at, at the time. We then cut to Bruce Wayne, and, and I will mention this right off the right off the hop, right off the jump. Robin's not mentioned at all in this story, um, which is weird. I find weird because even in you know like the last story with the Joker, where the Robin was involved, but he wasn't super involved. He's still around, especially in these scenes where Bruce is sitting around smoking a pipe, listening to the radio, which is how he gets his information in a lot of these early stories. Uh, which brings me to a, a comment on Mike's Amazing World of Comics that says this story might have been intended for Detective Comics 38, uh, which is the comic that or the issue that Robin Dick Grayson was introduced in. So it's possible due to you know editorial or timing, you know art not being able to get out or the story not being finished, something like that. It pushed it from 38 to. Batman number one, which would put it out of time chronologically with the rest of it, uh, which is why Robin doesn't appear, because he wouldn't have been introduced if this had been the 
Detective Comics 38 story, because there's always only one Batman story in Detective Comics. So, Robin's not in this at all. So, back to the actual story. Bruce is sitting in his easy chair smoking a pipe listening to the radio, and he hears about Professor Strange, uh, who uh, broke out of prison and then freed five um, patients from the city in San Asylum, and who knows what he's going to do with, with them. Uh, we uh, Time passes, quite a bit of time, um, a month later, in lower Manhattan. Uh, screams, you know, sh- sh- you know, shriek out in, in the, a busy street. And a man who I've got, I'm going to peg as maybe, let's see, so like the average person's probably about, or the average man is probably about uh, five foot nine. Let's, we'll say six feet just for ease of, I mean, at least, at least 15 feet high, I would say, is the, is the size of this dude. Pretty big dude. Uh, and also quite wide as well, because I mean, obviously it, it scales. It'd be really funny if he was 15 feet tall, but still the normal width of a person. Uh, That'd be very funny, uh, very comical. But he's wearing what I said, like the big, I think they're called Panama hats, very wide brim. And uh, his overcoat and his, which I can see now is probably, you know, inmate fatigues uh, or patient fatigues from uh, either the prison or the insane asylum. And he wreaks havoc this man uh on this manhattan street he grabs cars and he throws them the police attempt to shoot him but they're not the bullets are just bouncing right off of him they really just make him mad they don't really do anything he grabs the police and he throws the police through windows he grabs a light pole and swings it knocking over five six police officers in in one swing and he then rushes to the back of a truck and gets in, and the truck just starts to drive away. Police car begins pursuit. Uh, but as the police car gets close to the truck, the, uh, the large man, monster that they're calling him, um, throws a- an object that explodes the police car behind them. Uh, the next night, we see Bruce Wayne again sitting in his uh, house in his easy chair, smoking a pipe, listening to the radio, and he hears about what happened with this monster. And he says, this can only be the work of one man, Strange, Professor Hugo Strange. And he knows that there will be more to come and that he must stop Professor Strange. The next day... Another monster appears. He uh, destroys the foundation of an L-train bridge. And then, again, gets in the back of a truck. The truck drives away. Police pursue. And the police car is exploded by uh, some sort of explosive that the monster throws out the back. But luckily, Batman, in his bat plane, uh, or bat gyro, it does... It looks very, very bat-like in this, which in previous ones, it sometimes looks like a bat, sometimes it doesn't, it looks like a regular plane. But this one, it's got the bat face on the front, it's very good, very cool, very golden age, very goofy. Uh, and he follows the truck to a a cliffside, abandoned-looking house, warehouse, something like that. He then lands the bat plane, the bat gyro, and creeps his way up to the building. He gets to the big doors, and they swing open by themselves. And Batman says, what the? It looks like a trap, but I've got to chance it. Batman, you don't. Go around. Don't go where they want you to. Go around, get the jump on them. But he can't. He has to. He has to go through. He's been challenged, and Batman 
always accepts the challenge. He, you know, walks inside, doesn't notice two giant monstrous hands, and he is grabbed uh, by two monster men. And then the lights turn on, and Professor Hugo Strange is standing there. And Hugo Strange is looking like him, his evil self. He's got his very, you know, round John Lennon glasses, his pointy goatee beard, his bald, misshapen head, uh, giving bad name to bald men everywhere. Thanks, Hugo, and Ultra Humanite, and all the bad, Lex Luthor, all the bad, evil bald men. I, I, I mean, I get it. Like, um, it's it seems somewhat unnatural for someone to just be, like no hair on their head and that's sort of a an othering a a putting them outside of of the norm uh which is why so many evil people have bald heads i just named a bunch lex luther hugo strange the ultra humanite before he turns into a woman and then turns into a uh albino gorilla and there are probably more there are probably more that i'm not even thinking of um but it's it's mean it's mean uh to those who are follically challenged like myself but enough of my whining um, about about stuff. Let's get back to the story. Sorry, uh, he's standing there. He explains uh, what you know. He monologues like a villain does, and he tells Batman that he broke out of prison. You know, freed or I, I guess yeah, freed. I guess is the right word. They're not there in the insane asylum of their own free will, most likely. So freed find patients from the insane asylum, and then pumped their bodies full of this special chemical that speeds up the growth glands, and I'm assuming takes off any limiters on those growth glands, and they grow huge, and their minds are warped, uh, and, and and makes them you know obedient and stuff like that. It's a it's very you know. The science works exactly how Hugo Strange wants it to. So he's now got a plan. He's going to, like the next day, he's going to send out one monster, or yeah, one monster to sort of cause a ruckus in one part of the city and uh, with with some of Hugo's men uh, and in another part, another group of Hugo's men and another monster are going to rob all the banks in the city. It's a sort of bait and switch it's a diversion uh, it's a key you know look at what i'm doing over here so you don't see what i'm doing over here very classic classic ruse and so that batman doesn't get in their way they're obviously going to keep batman kit you know captured but they're also going to pump him full of this chemical so that in 18 hours it's a very very long process and a very very exact process he will become a monster and be pliable and obedient to Hugo Strange like the rest of them and be out of Hugo Strange's non-existent hair so they you know they pump Batman full of this and then one of the monsters hits him across the face cracks him on the jaw and uh, Batman doesn't wake up for almost 18 hours later he wakes up at 11 45 a.m so he they knocked him out at six uh it's exactly six o'clock yes at night uh when he's given the serum so he has 15 minutes before the serum takes effect so it's a big time crunch and he's got to get moving um while uh this is happening while batman's waking up he sees uh hugo strange you know send his men and his monsters out on their you know duties batman 
uh, is kind of out of luck because they took his utility belt uh, with all of his gadgets and stuff inside. But what they didn't know is that in his heel is a chemical mixture that when when put together, uh, probably I'm assuming one contain well, there's one container in one heel and one container in another heel. And when he mixes them together, he can make an explosive, probably similar to like C4. Don't ask me how he lights it or how he sets any sort of, you know, indication for the explosive to go boom. Maybe it's a time thing. Who knows? But he sets it off, busts out of the cell, and Hugo Strange is standing there being like, what? You're out? And Batman says, yeah, I am. And you know what else is out? My fist punches him across the face, out the window, and uh, down the cliff uh, to the, the crashing waves below. Batman takes a second to wonder if this is the last he's seen of Hugo Strange. Um, like, did he die? Can Batman mark a mark down in his ledger of blood uh, of a man killed? Uh, and But he doesn't know. He doesn't have time to check. Uh, when suddenly the door opens and the remaining monsters uh, op- come through, and all the doors in this place are monster-sized, which is Hugo, you know, he had a time. He had, he had a month or so. Uh, to to get this house or warehouse or laboratory retrofitted so that all the monsters could be like, oh, good, I don't have to duck when I go through the door. That's nice. That's comfort comfort for tall people. Batman grabs uh, the pole that is used to open the skylights before we had, you know, mechanical electronic skylights and uses it as a weapon on the monsters, hitting one in the face swinging from the ceiling uh, by the pole and kicking another one in the face. He uses it to trip them, and he trips one into one of the other ones. And when they stand up, they look at each other, and they're dumb. They, their brains have been warped. So they see each other, and they're angry, and they know that they're supposed to be fighting. So they fight each other. And while they're distracted, Batman quickly uses his master chemistry skills uh, to mix up an antidote and cures himself of the, you know, monster chemical. And just in time, he had a minute left. Whew! Cutting it close. Cutting it very close. Uh, meanwhile, while this has happened, you can see in the background by the shadows that the two monsters are continuing to fight. And as Batman is leaving, he says, Ah, they've killed each other as I hoped they would. They are now dead. That's what killing each other means, Batman. Two still live. They're in those trucks. One is on Daly Avenue and the other on Post Road. I can still catch them. Uh, so he gets into the bat plane and uh, heads to the Post Road first because that one must be the most, you know, prior, prior, priority number one. Gotta, gotta prioritize that one. And he swoops down. And as he's swooping down on the truck, Batman says the most, you know, lying to himself and to the audience thing that I've ever seen. He says, much as I hate to take human life, I'm afraid this time it's necessary. And listeners of the show, or longtime listeners of the show, will know that Golden Age Batman loves to kill people. He's killing people left and right. He possibly just killed Hugo Strange a few minutes ago. He tricked two men whose only crime was being experimented on by Hugo Strange into killing each other, and then he said, good, I hoped that they'd kill each other. Batman is lying to himself, and he's lying to us, the reader, and I'm not going to stand for it. I'm out here 
you know, putting Batman, Golden Age Batman, on blast. He does like to kill. He does it all the time. But uh, basically, he uses his machine gun that is attached to his uh, bat plane to, uh, you know, rake the truck, and it drives sort of off the road into a tree. That kills the two men in the cab. Uh, the monster flies out and is obviously still alive because he's got increased endurance and stuff, so he can survive a car crash, truck crash. And so Batman uses a, um, a handy-dandy noose that he has uh, on the bat plane to wrap it around the neck of the monster, flies him up, and uh, basically just waits until he asphyxiates, and then cuts the rope and says, all right, my work here is done. Time to go to Daily Avenue to deal with the rest. Um, so if you're keeping track, that's um, one, two, three. Uh, four, five, possibly six murders in this one story. So just keep keep track of that. Uh, I really should have been keeping a, a tally of Golden Age Batman kills because I think that would be uh, very interesting to to see. I'm sure the information's out there somewhere. But so Batman flies the Batplane to Daly Avenue, finds the truck, uh, and uh, shoots at it with his machine gun. And it, again, you know, uh, forcing it to, you know, drive sporadically, and it crashes into a what looks like a cafe storefront. So it doesn't show, but there's have, have to be people in there. Hopefully they got out of the way. Otherwise, Batman, again, just killing, uh, killing all over the place. The monster climbs out of the back, sees the bat plane, and just can just sense or realizes that it, it's going to do him harm. Uh, so he climbs up a building, and we get a very uh, an homage to the 1933 film King Kong, uh, where there is a plane flying around shooting bullets at uh, King Kong, uh, which is exactly what happens. Uh, Batman shoots bullets at this monster, but he's bulletproof. He's wearing bulletproof clothes. And uh, they bounce right off of him. But he says, Batman says, there's there are there are things that n- that won't bounce off of bulletproof clothing, and that's gas pellets, uh, Batman's favorite uh, device. And so he throws or shoots bat gas pellets at the monster, and uh, the monster is uh, knocked out and falls off the building to his death. And uh, that's so that's seven at least, or six or seven, depending on if Hugo Strange is alive, uh, which Batman takes time at the end to reminisce or to, to wonder about. He says, There goes the last of the monsters, yet I have a feeling that the biggest monster of them all, Professor Hugo Strange, still lives. Perhaps we shall meet again. Perhaps. That's right, Batman. Keep telling yourself if you believe that he's still alive, you can pretend that you didn't kill him. So that's cool. Good job, Batman. You did a bunch of murders, and you saved the day. Isn't that great? Um, so that's the end of that story. Uh, I think it's I think it's pretty good. It, it, it involves a lot of the science fiction aspects that Batman tends to get into. Kind of this old-timey idea that, like, science can do anything. And Hugo Strange is it's his, you know, more cerebral science fiction-y sort of villain, uh, one of 
like is only recurring villains at this time until the Joker later in this issue. Spoiler alert: the Joker is going to come back in this issue, and uh, I think it's fine. Uh, I, I I do think that Batman shouldn't kill as many people as he does, but Golden Age Batman loves to kill people. Uh, so that's that's that one. Now let's move on to the next story in this issue, and that story is titled simply "The Cat." Uh, obviously, like I said, it, it that title came later. But uh, it's a very straightforward title. It has uh, Batman and Robin, uh, their first run-in with Catwoman, although there's really nothing about this iteration of a female jewel thief uh, that that necessarily has to mean she's Catwoman. It's just then later retconned that this is Catwoman. And so she is, you know, even though she's called the Cat, she is later turned into Catwoman um, as the character develops. So, let's get into it. Uh, we, we join the story in media res on a yacht party uh, where the young Dick Grayson is working as a steward, which is like a waiter. Uh, we then learn that this is a party for Mrs. John Travers because women are not allowed to have their own names. They must have their father's, not father's, husband's names. Uh, but just with a missus in the front, uh, female autonomy be darned. Uh, we learn she's throwing a party on, on a, aboard her yacht, the Dolphin. And with her very, very expensive necklace on board, because the newspaper has to talk about the very expensive jewels on board, so that criminals know that this is a prime spot to do crime and steal really expensive jewels. So, Bruce... It says to Dick Grayson while they're in the gym one day, working out, uh, getting swole, worshiping at the Iron Church, you know. Uh, if Robin, or if Dick, would like to go undercover on this party while Bruce deals with something else, uh, either as Batman or as just Bruce Wayne. Robin says, uh, would I? Yeah, I would. Uh, so that's how Robin got onto this uh, yacht without Batman being around i guess he's dick grayson sorry not robin dick grayson it'd be weird if robin was walking around as a steward and be like robin what are you doing i'm stewarding in full costume with my domino mask and everything so dick is on board doing some investigative work he's overhearing some things from passengers uh mrs travers's nephew denny he has brought uh this woman oh we do learn that mrs john travers's name is martha Martha Travers. Why couldn't you just say that? Because. Uh, we learn that Denny has brought uh, this this older woman uh, uh, who he's been helping while she uh, sprained her ankle. So this old woman. Uh, her name is Miss Peggs. Uh, so unmarried, you know. So she's single. Uh, and, you know, he's a fine boy, that Denny. Uh, and, and Dick Grayson thinks so, too. He's like, what a nice guy to escort an old woman around like that. And one of the other regular stewards on board the yacht says, uh, yeah, no. He's probably trying to get money out of her. He's always going to his aunt for money, so it wouldn't be shocking if this Miss Peggs was also wealthy. Uh, and he's trying to get money out of her. The steward says that everybody around uh, Mrs. Travers is always trying to get money out of her. Her brother, her nephew, obviously. Weirdly, her doctor, too. It's just all a weird situation uh with with trying to get money out of this woman 
So Dick grows back to his stewarding duties, and he's walking by a cabin, and he overhears a quarrel. And it is uh, Mrs. Travers in there with her brother, and her brother's like, please, I need some money. Uh, my stock, you know, guesses were bad, and so I lost a lot of money in the stock market. And she said, I'm not giving you another cent, Roger. I don't care if you are my brother. It's not my job to finance your stupid decisions on the stock market. And Dick's like, hmm, seems suspicious. That There seems to be a lot of people on board who, you know, want this money. Maybe this isn't the safest place for a, you know, a necklace worth half a million dollars. Um, so that's, you know, it's a, it's a hotbed for people who need money. Uh, Dick continues to skulk around, listening in and, and doing stewarding stuff when he sees Denny, uh, Mrs. Travers' nephew, throw a piece of paper over the side of the ship. Luckily for Dick, the paper comes back on because it's windy. If you're ever trying to throw anything against the wind on board a ship, if you throw it at the front of the ship, uh, the wind will sometimes blow it back to another part of the ship. It happens all the time. It especially happens with vomit for people who are seasick. Uh, now, I don't know that from experience, he said, uh, hoping you'd believe that he didn't know that from experience. But so the paper comes back on board, and Dick grabs it and opens it up and reads it. And on inside it says, keep your aunt away from room. Will, there's a, will be there? Something like that. It's in it's in cursive. It's very tiny. And it says, signed, the cat. Uh, no little cat symbol. So she's not as, you know, uh, good with uh, theatrics as the Batman is with his little bat signature. But nonetheless, still a very ominous note. So Dick's like, hmm, that's not great. I should get to that room right away. And he doesn't even get there all the way when Mrs. Travers, you know, shrieks out of her room saying that her necklace has been stolen. And Dick's like, oh, no, the cat's already got here. He's, she's already st they've already stolen the the necklace that's not good uh you know the captain and everybody on board is saying everyone calm down calm down we're gonna find this necklace uh we're gonna investigate when a boat comes up announcing itself to be the coast guard and everyone's like oh thank goodness the coast guard they'll they'll figure this out they're basically uh water police so they will they will get to the bottom of this that's great so they 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 you know rush to get the Coast Guard on board. But what's this? It's not the Coast Guard. It's a gang of old-timey 1940s goons with their Tommy guns and their suits and their uh, fedoras. Very Humphrey Bogart looking with the Tommy guns and such. And they say, yeah, we, we are here to rob you, you know? Probably because they read it in the newspaper that this is a very, you know, wealthy boat. And basically they find out that uh, the necklace has already been stolen. And so they're, you know, they're pissed. They're like, gosh, dang it. Someone already did the thing that we were going to do. You can't trust crooks these days. Uh, they said, well, you know, maybe they're thinking, we put our name on this, on the crook bulletin board. Someone else shouldn't be doing this. Uh, so instead they just rob everybody of their regular stuff, their regular valuables. Uh, not half a million dollars. Uh, they think, but still very worth, wow. Uh, Dick saves some passengers from being shot for whatever reason, or actually not for whatever reason, because a guy thinks that one of the robbers are getting fresh with his date, 
So he says, hey, get your hands off her, you dirty thief. And so another one's going to pull out a gun, shoot him. But Dick tackles him from, the, from behind and punches him in the face and then pushes another one down and then jumps overboard. Uh, the, the goons then, you know, shoot at him with their Tommy guns, but Tommy guns are notoriously not very accurate. And that's why they just spray and pray. And underneath the water, uh, Dick has uh, taken off his clothes, and underneath is his Robin costume. So now he's a Robin, so that's great. And the goons, having robbed everyone, and they think getting more money or more valuables in dough, money, and jewels than the necklace is even worth. So overall, very good. Would they still like to have the necklace? Yes, of course. That would basically double their haul. Uh, but still, they got to get out of here before the real Coast Guard shows up. So they drive their boat away. They're a few miles away from the yacht, from the dolphin, when another boat comes up to them, and it's coming straight for them, and it's coming fast. And so they, they shoot some bullets at it to try to stop it. It doesn't stop, and it comes up alongside of them, and out jumps the Batman. He has finished his plans, or whatever he was doing. I don't think he was doing the other story. I, that would be convenient, but I just don't think that that makes any sense, because that one took like a month. Um, so how would he know uh, that that was going to happen during the time that Dick was on this boat in an afternoon? Uh, it just doesn't make any sense chronologically. So who knows? Maybe he had a doctor's appointment. So uh, Dick and, or sorry, Robin. He's Robin now. Robin and Batman deal with these thugs. Robin ties them all up. And then something really weird happens. So Batman's going to do a little PSA for the readers obviously at this point in time uh readers most readers of comic books are children uh boys specifically he's going to say i'm going to show that these thugs are nothing without their guns so i'm going to have four of them fight robin in hand-to-hand -hand combat and robin of course easily trounces them they're all begging and crying please stop don't stop hitting me please for the love of god stop hitting me small child and uh batman then stares directly into the quote unquote camera uh of the page and says well kids there's your proof crooks are yellow without their guns don't go around admiring them rather do your best in fighting them and all their kind now I will say the idea of, of the gangster lifestyle uh, was very glamorous at the time. Things like Bonnie and Clyde and, and um, Scarface, all the other gangsters that when they rob banks, they stand on the steps of the bank and say, this is me, Babyface McGee, I did this. It, it can seem very glamorous and, and an easy way to make money, especially during the depression that the country is just getting over uh, when times are really hard. So I, I do think that's good of Batman to say, hey, there's nothing to admire here with these thugs. But I don't think that he should then say, kids, you should go out and fight thugs as long as they don't have guns. I just I think the average thug will probably still try to beat you up, especially if you are a child, even if he doesn't have a gun. Uh, so Batman's heart is in the right place. I do think he's he's made maybe a little bit of a, a faux pas here, a little bit of a misstep in telling kids to fight thugs. But he loves, you know, he loves employing children in, in fighting crime, so that's just his, that's his whole shtick. Uh, 
Batman and Robin leave the thugs tied up on their boat. Presumably they radioed the Coast Guard or some sort of form of police to get them because otherwise they're just leaving them to either escape or die. One of the two. Uh, And they travel back to the dolphin. On the way, Robin explains the cat and all the stuff that's been going on. And Batman has a plan that we will learn about in a few panels, uh, a few pages. Actually, just one page. A few panels, one page. So on board the yacht, the guests are trying to uh, cure the malaise that they find themselves in from losing all of their jewels and money. They're rich people. The only thing that gives them joy is wealth. So they don't have any, so now they're bummed. And so they're having a masquerade party. Everyone's dressed up in costume, and they're about to hand out the prize, a very fancy cup, to the most original costume. At this time, Batman walks in, looking spooky. He's got his cape pulled all the way around him, like like 1990s Batman, uh, looking very spooky. And everyone's like, wow, what a costume. He's dressed like the Batman. He looks just like the Batman. It's amazing. He should get first prize. And they do. Mrs. Travers gives him first prize. And he says, thank you. I accept the cup. And now, if you may, I would like to fill it with... And one of the guests says, with a drink, sir? Hell yeah. That would be me. I'd be like, fill it up, my good man. But no, Batman says, no. I want to fill it up with your stolen property. I've recovered it, you see. I really am the Batman. And everyone's like, what? He's the real Batman? What? That'd be that'd be cool. That'd be very cool, in my, in my opinion, to meet the actual Batman. But just at that moment, the fire alarm goes off. And it's ringing, and everyone everyone starts freaking out and starts running for the the exit to try to get to lifeboats, because obviously a burning ship is never a good place to be. When the panel focuses in on uh, Miss uh, Pegs, she's running out of the room uh, like a much younger person and without a limp from her sprained ankle. Hmm, very suspicious. The captain yells out, stop, there's no fire, it's a false alarm, someone pulled the fire alarm as a joke. And we then see Miss Peck, and she's like, a fire alarm, I wonder, the Batman? Is he after me? Is it a trap? Uh, When suddenly Robin jumps down headfirst, like the Batman likes to do, like he did in the the first Joker story in this issue, and like the vigilante does if if you are a listener to issue by issue crisis jumping headfirst is the way to a superhero you're not a superhero until you jump headfirst downwards toward the towards the ground robin tackles miss pegs and uh batman rele- reveals her to be in disguise so she, he takes her gray wig off and reveals uh black hair underneath and he takes off the makeup that she's high she has on her uh, face this makeup wax and reveals a very beautiful young woman and she says well what's the matter haven't you ever seen a pretty girl before and it's like yes i've seen a pretty girl before but typically they're not dressed up as an old woman and i mean i guess she could she could write it off as i was dressed up as an old woman for the masquerade ball that's what i would go with but i'm not a jewel thief uh, Batman then, uh, puts her in a chair. Oh, sorry, I forgot. I forgot the most, the most jarring thing about this, this sequence of events. It's a very famous or infamous, depending on how you want to put it, 
uh, line or panel uh, in in the history of Batman. So he is he is wiping the makeup wax off of the cat off of Miss Pegs, and she says, "Let go of me." And then Batman says the phrase, "Quiet or Papa Spank." Quiet or Papa Spank. That's a buck wild thing to say. Uh, it is obviously the 1940s, uh, but I just don't, I just, if Batman said that today, I'd be so, anyone, if any hero, any superhero said that today, if any villain said that today, I'd be like, what are you doing? Papa Spank? Batman's not a father at this point in time. He's not a papa. It's just a very buck wild thing to say. Quiet or Papa Spank? Dang. Wow. Okay. Quiet or Papa Spank? Just thinking about it. Wow. But enough about Quiet or Papa Spank. Uh, he, he, Batman continues his you know, decostuming, uh, revealing of this woman as being a thief, and goes to her ankle wrap for her sprained ankle, quote-unquote, and reveals that underneath the bandage was the necklace. She had strapped it to her ankle. People was like, no one would think to, that someone would hide something in a sprained ankle. And he reveals the, the very valuable necklace and says, uh, or where Robin, Robin says, how did you know she was the cat and not Dr. Wallace or Roger? Uh, Roger being Mrs. Travers's brother and Dr. Wallace, I presume, being her doctor. Uh, Batman says, the note dropped by uh, Denny, Mrs. Travers' nephew, said he had an accomplice, you remember. You said Miss Peggs was a guest of Denny's, not his aunt. And then, and he cuts off. Um, And then it's revealed that Robin was the one that pulled the fire alarm. But before we go any further, what a dumb criminal. You know, what a dumb pair of criminals. Okay, so we're, we're a criminal pair. And we're on my aunt's boat party. And we're going to steal her necklace. Who would, if one of us gets caught, should we do anything to make sure that the other one isn't connected with them? No, let's come together as a, as a pair, even if I am an old woman and you are a young man. That should be enough. It's, it's very dumb. Uh, and also, I think that's, that's a stupid thing like, ah, it has to be his, the person he came with. That's, that's stupid. And, it, and we could all see that straight from the jump, right? Like, I saw it straight from the jump. Ah, this is going to be her. This old woman. Because who brings an old woman to a party? I don't know. I guess Denny, if he was trying to be a gold digger. Uh, But just at that moment, the door bursts open and Denny is there with a gun. And he says, I'll take that, Batman. And Batman says, as long as you want it, here. And and the thing he's giving him is not the necklace, but his fist in in a punch in the face. Knocking Denny out and, uh, and, and saving the day. Uh, Robin comments that, that Denny has been knocked out colder than a dead mackerel. Good line. And, uh, the cat, uh, tries to, uh, woo Batman into joining her as her king of crime when she can be the queen of crime. And Batman says that he's tempted, which, like, sure, pretty lady asks you to do things. Sometimes you're like, I'm tempted. But he says we work on different sides of the law. So let's go. So he's going he's gonna to take her on his boat to the police. And they're driving back to the, uh, sh- to the shore. 
they say, uh, Robin says, there's the wharf, we're almost home. And then the cat suddenly jumps overboard. And, and Batman just says, fancy that. And Robin's about to jump into the water to go after her when Batman also stands up and they bump into each other. And, you know, while they're doing like that, you know, maybe they're doing the thing where you're trying to get past somebody, by somebody, and you each go one way and then you go the other way. And, and then, you know, some, someone finally just has to stop the other person from moving and go around. But by the time they do this whole sort of game, uh, the cat has, has made an escape and... Robin says, too late, she's gone. And say, I'll bet you bumped into me on purpose. That's why you took her along with us, so she might get a break. And Batman says, why Robin, my boy? Whatever gave you such an idea? Hmm, nice, nice, nice night, isn't it? And he, and then we, it's sort of, it's one of those, uh, not faded to black, but like, it, the, the, the black of the screens slowly, you know, encircles them, and then closes over them and as that's happening it it's a uh, batman says lovely girl what i say mustn't forget i've got a girl named julie remember julie his fiance oh well she still had lovely eyes maybe i'll bump into her again sometime and robin's over here with his hands on his chin saying hmm uh so batman is in love with the cat uh, obviously the bat in love with the cat uh, which does set up their dynamic, again, for the 80 years they've been around. It's just very cool, very interesting that these sort of dynamics for Batman and his rogues gallery are set up so early, from the jump. Th this is what it's going to be. Batman is going to let the Joker kill way more people than he should, and the Joker will always get out. And Batman is in love with Catwoman, and likely vice versa, and he'll always go easy on her because of that. Uh, or most most often go easy on her because of that. It's just super interesting that that's the way it is. Uh, and I think this story is okay as a first introduction to Catwoman, but I do think that a lot of it, like a good chunk of it, maybe half, was focused on a random group of thugs and also a PSA for children to fight thugs as long as they don't have guns. So, uh, as far as the story goes, the parts with the cat in it, good, fine, great. The other parts, weirdly, why are they there? Uh, so, uh, it feels like just kind of taking up pages. So, but uh, let's move on to the final story of this issue, uh, which is The Joker Returns. And this one actually does have a title, so that's, that's super interesting. This final story starts just how the first Joker story of this issue ended with the Joker in his cell claiming that he is going to escape and get revenge, all the classic things of a villain who's just been put in jail. And uh, Bob Kane and Bill Finger, when they were writing this one, uh, must have just discovered, hey, if we put two things together, we can make chemical reactions and cause explosions. We saw it in the last story with, not the last story, two stories ago, uh, with uh, Batman in the jail cell mixing chemicals to make an explosion. And... Uh, the Joker does the exact same thing, but from false teeth in the back of his mouth, um, which uh, cyanide pills exist. So, uh, you know, false teeth exist. So that's fine. That all makes perfect sense. He blows up his cell, uh, looks like killing a guard or another inmate uh, or something, and escapes. Uh, it's, it's broadcast over the radio to uh, a, a 
Dick Grayson and a Bruce Wayne who is tying his tie. And uh, it, the news of the Joker's escape. And so Batman and Robin are like, all right, well, we got to be very on our guard because he's shrewd, subtle, and above all else, ruthless. Uh, he's not subtle. He does announce every single one of his crimes over the radio. Not subtle at all. Uh, but uh, Bruce says the Joker will return with a vengeance. Okay, so but this, but then something else is going to happen. You're going to be like Bruce. What? Why weren't you prepared? But first, we cut back to the Joker. He has uh, gone to a deserted cemetery and moved aside a gravestone, which has revealed steps going down into a secret underground lair. And so he's now going to do some uh, crimes. And he's he makes he's makes a lot of card puns. Not really card puns. He just makes a lot of card quips, I guess, in this uh, story. He says he he's going to let them all know that the Joker is still the game and is still high, high card. So, okay. Um, sometime later... Uh, People are listening to the radios like last time. I, I will say, I, I have a real problem with this story because it is just basically the first story again. It's the first story just again. Different people are killed, but it's the same thing. The Joker puts out a, a, a broadcast over the radio, says he's going to kill somebody and steal a thing. He kills that person and steals a thing just repeatedly. And it's boring. If I had gotten to this story after reading through the whole comic and reading that first story in the in one sitting or maybe a couple sittings, I'd be like, why are we doing this again? Like, just don't have Joker in the issue again. Have him in a different, have him in the next issue when you have thought up a new thing. Don't just do the same thing because no one has learned from the first time. You'll see. Okay. So people are shocked. People are like scared. Oh no. Uh, so, but it's the police chief. The police chief he's going to kill. Then the police do the same thing that they did every single other time, which was they surround the person in their home, in where they're always at. This is what's dumb about this. They didn't learn about the methodology. They didn't learn from their mistakes last time. So they're keeping the, they keep the person in their home or in their office, which is where the police chief is. And that's where he spends most of his time at work so they're there and it's almost time for the police chief to die and he uh phone calls for him okay yeah no no problem with a phone call phone calls are, are harmless so uh he, they transfer the phone over to the call over to the police chief's phone and he's you know he's on the he's on the phone and he's like oh i can't hear you can you speak louder and then a really loud noise or loud someone saying joker really really loud comes out of the earpiece and then he collapses dead. Well, it's discovered that there's a dart in his ear from the phone and that the really loud noise vibrated some sort of device, shooting the dart out into his ear, putting the Joker venom into him and killing him. Lame. That one's, that's dumb. That's, I mean, a lot of the science and, and stuff in here is, is a little weird, but that's taking it too far. Um... Because how would the Joker have done that? When would he have had time? Whatever. Uh, the Joker then steals, a in a sort of montage of crime, he steals a famous painting, leaves a Joker card, uh, 
steals a rare gem from someone in their house, and they're left with a, a Richter grin, a uh, Joker grin. Uh, I don't know if he announced these ones over the radio. It's not said. I, it's presumably he, he did. Maybe he didn't. Maybe he decided that's dumb, because it is. But... We then cut to Bruce Wayne, and he hears over the radio the Joker's next announcement. Now, here's the question. Bruce, you said once you heard that the Joker had escaped, okay, he's going to come back for a vengeance, and then you just let the police chief be murdered. Okay, all right, well, it's, it's classic Batman Joker. Batman let Joker kill people. And I know I've said that a bunch this episode. It's just, it's just shocking how, how much he does it. He just lets people be killed. So much for, you know, fighting for the innocent and, and stopping crime. Uh, so the Joker announces over the radio that he's going to steal the Cleopatra necklace from the Drake Museum. And yes, I did think, whoa, do you think that museum's named after the Drakes, like Tim Drake and his parents who are rich? Maybe. I, I doubt it, but maybe. Maybe we can retcon that it is, you know, in our own headcanon. Headcanon accepted. Uh, it is named after, I'm going to say not Tim Drake's father. I'm going to say Tim Drake's grandfather donated a lot of money to the museum, and so they named it the Drake Museum. Boom. So he's going to steal this necklace. So the police fill the museum with themselves. Tons of police everywhere. And th this plan has always worked. Every time they fill a place with police wa waiting for the Joker, it always works out great. Oh, wait, what's that? Oh, I'm getting news. Oh, it's never worked. That's, I, I'm reading this now. Huh. Well, all right. Uh, I, I stand corrected. It never works. And this time is no exception. The Joker comes out of a sarcophagus, shoots off Joker venom gas, paralyzing, the paral paralysis kind, not the kill you kind, uh, par paralyzing all of the police with Richter grins. Batman says, oh, so first, first I should say, the Joker grabs the Cleopatra necklace and says, Cleopatra's necklace from her lily white neck. And someone says from off panel, I'd like to put my hands around your lily white neck. And the Joker's face is all white. It's very, very white. Uh, he, I don't know if it's a skin condition at this point or makeup or something, but he's got all paper white skin. And it's the Batman. He's there. He's finally, finally says, you know what? It's time. The Joker's done enough. It's time for me to step in. So the Joker and him tussle. Uh, it, it seems like Batman has the upper hand uh, when the Joker uh, says he'll get the last laugh and punches him in the face. Kind of, I don't know if knocking him out or just dazing him, dropping him to the ground, uh, dropping him prone. Uh, when the Joker grabs an axe, and it's it's funny because the panel, the, the text box in the panel says, the madman reaches for an ancient mace when clearly it's two axes crossed uh, on a wall. Uh, so that's that's a funny little uh, faux pas. I don't know if they just, their scripts and whatever Bob Kane drew or his whatever ghost artist he used to, to write, to draw this one, uh, just got, it, got his wires crossed or he doesn't know what a mace looks like, but it's an axe, not a mace. And he swings it down at Batman but it, it's uh, so Batman must not be knocked out because he it says a sheer desperate twist of the Batman's body 
and uh, the mace, it says mace again, gives him a glancing blow on the side of the head. So Batman, is, like I said, is not knocked out. He's just woozy. He's just sort of dazed. Um, he, he slides out of the way. Luckily for Batman, because the Joker would have just taken another swing, but the police have, uh, either from a different part of the museum or from outside the museum, rush in, and so the Joker makes his escape. And uh, a police officer finds Batman's body. And he's like, I'm going to do something that I've been wanting to do for a long time. Take off the Batman's mask and see who he really is. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, this might be the first attempt of unmasking Batman in in the comics. I don't certainly remember another one, but I could be mistaken. Uh, If you know of one earlier, let me know. Uh, If if I said something about it in in an earlier episode, because obviously I've covered every single instance of Batman (laughs) since he came about, so I would have said it probably. Uh, And then it has a sort of little text box that makes it seem like a cliffhanger, like, will the Batman's identity be revealed as Bruce Wayne? Will his his fight against crime end? Uh, But which kind of confused me. I was like, there's a ton more pages left in this this issue, in this story. It can't be the end. And it's not. Uh, Batman leaps up from the ground and says, sorry, boys, but I'm not quite ready for jail, which has been said by Batman and criminals everywhere. Uh, he rushes, he runs to the window and uh, jumps out. And it's kind of funny here. The text box says, the police see the mantled figure leap through the window to apparently drop to the ground below. Then a police officer says, stop him. He's going to try to drop to the ground it's like oh okay cool thanks uh thank you for reiterating that uh but batman doesn't he leaps out the window and grabs onto an the overhang and swings his body up onto the roof he then lays flat against the roof to not be seen the police officers think well he must have escaped what a guy what a guy he did it he escaped uh the failure by the police multiple times i think it's up to like how many people died in the last story? Three? Four? Like seven or eight? Failures by the police to stop the Joker from doing exactly what he's going to, he says he's going to do? Uh, so a, a reformer, Edgar Martin, uh, is giving public speeches about how the police suck. Which like, hey man, I'm right there with you, ACAB. But uh, the Joker doesn't like this. Uh, he says, Edgar Martin talks too much. He might get a sore throat from talking so much. I have a medicine for him in this test tube. And obviously, it's it's poison, obviously. Um, so the Joker announces on the radio, Edgar Martin, I'm displeased with your talk of me. Prepare to die tomorrow night at 9 sharp. The Joker has spoken. So Edgar Martin is like, well, all right. Uh, I'm gonna die. So the, again, the police are like, hey, we got police all up in your house, Martin. The place where you spend most of your time. And where, I, presumably, the Joker knows you live. So why don't you play with these playing cards? You know, playing cards? One of the Joker's, like, things? His whole shtick is the Joker card? Uh, why don't you play solitaire with these playing cards? And Edgar's like, oh, of course, I'll just play solitaire calm my nerves and he he cuts his gosh darn finger on the a brand new deck of these playing cards and he, he he's like oh wow it hurts you know paper cuts hurt weirdly a lot um 
and he, he lays the first card down to start, you know, dealing out solitaire and what is it it's a joker and he looks through the rest of the cards and they're all joker cards who could have seen this coming the joker and he sabotaged playing cards i'm i'm shocked uh and he's you know he's he's freaking out he's freaking out and all of a sudden he's dead um the it's revealed that these blade sharp cards have joker venom on them obviously we could all see this coming uh, so, again, the police have failed uh, by doing the exact same thing over and over again, a la the definition of insanity, uh, is to do the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. So, um, the next day, we cut to uh, Bruce Wayne talking with his friend Commissioner Gordon. Remember? Remember how Bruce Wayne is friends with Commissioner Gordon? I bet you forgot, because I did for a second. <laughs> I forgot that in the first issue, it's established that Commissioner Gordon is friends with Bruce Wayne. Um, so basically, Bruce gives Commissioner Gordon the idea that, hey, why don't you set up bait? Like, why don't you use bait for the Joker? He seems to be wanting to steal jewels and stuff, aside from also killing people. Why don't you set up a jewel that is like just like ripe for the pickings uh, and then set a trap for the Joker? And they do. They, you know, they, they plastered all over. This fire ruby is estimated to be valued so much. Uh, and um, the Joker is reading the paper that it says it in. And he says, the fire ruby again, so much publicity. Could it be a trap? How I would like to own the gem. Uh, and he, he just decides he must have it, even though it seems like a trap. He's smart. It is a trap. He does his thing over the radio. I'm going to steal the ruby. Good job, Joker. He leaves his cemetery base. He's on the balcony of the building. He creeps into the dark room when suddenly all the lights turn on. The police all have guns aimed at him instead of shooting him at all. Which, I mean, I guess you have to... I mean, police, they do have to... They do have to, you know, give forewarning. They can't just shoot people. I did just say, yeah. Yeah. Um, So they, you know... The Joker has no rules, though, so he does just shoot all of these uh, police officers. Not with Joker gas, but with guns and bullets and shoots a bunch of cops and then escapes uh, up onto the roof. I guess not escapes, goes up onto the roof because you can't really escape from up there, typically. Uh, But someone waits up for him on the roof, and it is Robin, the boy wonder. The Joker jumps across an alley or a street over to another building Robin attempts to do the same and the Joker punches him before he can reach the other side. Like as the, as Robin is getting to the edge, Joker just, you know, swings out with a fist, punches him in the face and he falls, he falls, he falls. Uh, and Robin dies. Just kidding. No, Robin's fine. He grabs onto a, like a horizontal flagpole, which I don't know if people still have on their, like, coming out of their windows anymore. Maybe it's, like, a thing of the past. Or is it a, is it a clothesline, maybe? Is it, like, a clothesline pole? I've never understood why they're there. Um, but he grabs onto this pole and, and, you know, saves himself from falling to the ground. And then Joker says something buck wild. He's, he's walking down the stairs of this building, and he says, I didn't hear the boy's body hit the ground. Are you supposed to be able to hear bodies hitting grounds outside while you're in the stairwell of a building? I just, I don't think so. Personally, I don't think that's how sound travels. Uh, He gets down to the ground, Joker does, from the stairwell. 
and sees the dangling boy wonder. And he's about to shoot him when the Batman leaps out from around a corner. Why the Batman wasn't always already up on the roof? Or maybe he was covering the ground exits, now that I think about it. That could be. That could be. He jumps out from around the corner and says, Joker, stop. And the Joker says, I know you wear a bulletproof vest. I'm going to shoot you in the face instead. Uh, the Joker is still trump card. Uh, that's sometimes true in card games, and sometimes it's useless. Robin uh, is is still clinging to the pole, but it's not meant to hold a, a boy's weight. So it snaps, and Robin falls. Uh, it begins falling again to the ground, uh, but he hits a, a awning, which, uh, if you know anything about comics or cartoons, when you hit an awning, you bounce off of it like a frickin' trampoline. So he does that and lands right on the Joker's shoulders, knocking the gun out of his hand and knocking him to the, well, not to the ground, it looks like, because in the next panel, Batman and the Joker begin fighting. Batman punches him in the face and punches him in the face again. Joker pulls out a knife and he's ready to kill the Batman. And then something dumb happens. Something dumb and really against anything that any person would do while holding a knife. He's going to swing down at the Batman. When he swings down, the Batman jumps out of the way. And so then the Joker, like, stabs himself in the stomach, which I just don't think that someone would do. I've never tried to stab anyone before, but I just don't think that you would be stabbing with such momentum. It's It's a hand. It's an arm. You know, like, he's... I mean, I guess he is, now that I, now I'm looking at it closely, he's holding the knife in his hand. Batman is holding the Joker's arm, stopping him, so he's probably like fighting, he's fighting to stab down at the Batman. Batman jumps out of the way, yeah, I guess I could see how the Joker would stab himself in the stomach. All right, I'll, I'll let that slide. I just think it's silly whenever anyone stabs themselves while trying to stab somebody else. I just think it's silly, but... Uh, I can see how it could possibly happen. Uh, and that jo- that knife just happened to have Joker venom on it. And so the Joker begins to laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. And then he dies. The Joker dies. Bet you didn't see that coming, did you? Joker dying in his first appearance, second appearance, same issue. Well, sad. And the Joker and Batman and Robin are standing over the body, and they're talking about how the Joker will be smiling forever, even when he's a skeleton, which, like, yeah, all skeletons are smiling because you can see all their teeth. Uh, When the police come up and Batman and Robin make their escape because the police don't like Batman or Robin, uh, they then see that the Joker has been killed, uh, and they call an ambulance to bring him to presumably the morgue or the hospital morgue. Uh, and uh, inside the ambulance, the doctor looks at the police officer with a shocked face and says, uh, I just examined this man. He isn't dead. He's still alive, and he's going to live. All right, so the Joker didn't die. Joker's still alive, obviously. And that's the end of that story. Uh, but there is one final panel in this issue and it says golden rules for robin's regulars which are like a a club for children to be like robin to be friends with robin and the robin's regulars code is readiness obedience brotherhood 
industriousness, and then this final one, nationalism. Now, I just don't think that we need nationalism. Nationalism can is a slippery slope um, to, to fascism, stuff like that, people who don't, you know. Nationalism is bad. It's any anyone anyone who knows anything knows that nationalism is bad. So maybe don't encourage the kids to uh, nationalism. But that is, whew, that is the end of Batman number one. We spent, I mean, I could I could end the episode right here. One issue, just Batman number one, because like it's only four stories. So really, it's only two issues of of you know adventure comics or, or more fun comics or something like that or even action comics detective comics really all the comics we cover but i i just these stories are important because they're first appearances stuff like that recurring villains but and they're all 12 pages long like because zatara is well zatara is 12 pages crimson avengers only six our man's only six uh, so these are longer stories, all of them, and there's four of them. And maybe if I stop talking about how long the stories are, we can move on to the next issue, uh, and still get this in maybe under an hour or under two hours, but maybe not. If we go longer than two hours, you know, more for you guys. Let's talk about this next issue and the final issue of this episode, More Fun Comics number 56, released May 2nd. 1940 with a cover date of June 1940 uh, and we do have a debut technically in this issue and it is Congo Bill uh, but I'm going to talk a second about Congo Bill before we get into the stories so Congo Bill is the story of Congo Bill uh, he is a, a adventurer explorer in in the jungles of, of Africa and uh, other places and he goes on adventures in 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 there, you know, uh, very reminiscent of Jungle Jim, which is a, a newspaper strip from Alex Raymond back in the day. Um, obviously, he debuts in, in More Fun Comics number 56. He runs in this series until number 67 in May of 1941. And then he moves over to Action Comics where he runs for ever for like a long, 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 long time um, until he gets his own solo title in the 50s. But he's not really he, a superhero in really any way. Uh, he does he does he has adventures in the stories, but it's not like Batman has adventures or Sandman or Our Man has adventures where they have any sort of a, like identity, secret identity, or or all the hallmarks of a superhero. The reason I'm talking about him is because in issue two forty eight of um action comics he becomes or he gains the ability to change into a like super strong uh super reflexes you know has superpowers gorilla and uh his strip is then changed uh from congo bill to congorilla uh and that's why i'm talking about him but I'm not going to recap the stories of Congo Bill because they're not... I, I just don't think they fit into what we're trying to do here, and so they would just take up time uh, that we could be spent on, you know, hearing more about the adventures of Dr. Fate and the Spectre and, and all the heroes that make it in any real way 
to the present or have any real impact in the DC universe as a whole. Because aside from a short-lived series in uh, the 1950s before he was Kongorilla uh, and a, a small mini-series, uh, which we'll talk about in Issue by Issue Crisis because it's from 1992. So we'll eventually get there. We'll talk about uh, Congo Bill and Kongorilla, their mini-series. He doesn't really have anything. He's in Cry for Justice a little bit, but it, he's not very big in the in the uh, DC universe. So I don't want to waste time that we could use to make ground, uh, so to speak, uh, into the future uh, by focusing on stories that don't really have any longevity or anything like that. So that's all we're really going to say about Congo Bill uh, until, you know, until the miniseries, until, I mean, maybe in, in issue 248, we'll talk about how he turns into Kongorilla. Uh, and the series changes to Kongorilla, and maybe we'll talk about, then we'll cover him when we get to Action Comics 248 in January of 1959, if we ever get there. So, but uh, sorry to all the Congo Bill fans out there, uh, we won't be talking about Congo Bill. But we will be talking about The Spectre and Dr. Fate, two very, very great, two of my, you know, uh, really enjoyed characters, so we'll talk about those. So uh, let's get into it. Uh, the Spectre is first up, and his uh, strip, as always, was written by Jerry Siegel and Bernard ba- Bailey and drawn by Bernard Bailey. So let's get into it. This Spectre story begins with Jim Corrigan investigating a, a very urgent call to the police uh, by the manager of Little's department store, and that's L-Y-T-E-L-L, Little. Uh, and the manager tells him about a representative of Bentley Wholesaler uh, who has been warning the manager of Little's department store that unless they make huge purchases from them, something unpleasant is going to happen to uh, the store, Little's department store. Uh, that's textbook extortion. Uh, you can't do that. Uh, it's a crime. And Jim says this. He says, no one can force you to purchase what you don't want. It's true. Uh, we then uh, are told that there is an explosion, the sound of an explosion. We don't see any sort of sound, you know, clues or anything like that. But the manager says, what was that? And Jim says, sounded like an explosion. So Jim runs out of the office. And as he's doing that, the specter jumps out of his body. And I do always wonder what Jim does while the specter is doing its thing uh, or his thing or their thing. But... I would love just a, a an issue where it's just uh, Jim just goes about daily life or he just, like, tries to act normal. Because I can't imagine he just stops moving because that would be really suspicious, right? So the specter jumps out of his body and he goes through a wall, phases through a wall like a ghost that he is. And the ceiling is falling from some type of explosion uh, onto customers and employees in the department store. The specter stops the pieces from falling until everybody can get out and get to safety and then lets them fall. Now, why with his, you know, omnipotent powers, doesn't he just fix the ceiling? Stop asking so many questions. It's, you can't, you can't ask those hard-hitting questions like that. Uh, Back into the uh, body of Jim goes the specter and uh, him and the manager are talking 
and the manager says that the explosion was deliberate. He's sure of it, uh, and as he's about to say what Jim has to do, the phone starts ringing. The manager answers it, and someone on the other line says, have you reconsidered placing orders with us? And he's like, I, you at Bentley Wholesalers, I can't prove anything, but I won't do business with you. I swear it. Uh, Jim thinks that he it's time he pays Bentley Warehouse uh, Wholesalers a visit, and he does, and uh, Bentley of Bentley Wholesalers says that, you know, he's made no threats to Little's department store, only business overtures, and for an explosion, I don't know anything about any explosion. Wink. He doesn't say wink. I, that's me editorializing. Jim leaves... And Bentley says to one of his goons or warehouse employees, whatever you want to call them, that he says that that dick is too blasted nosy. Take care of him. Now, that's not Bentley just being mean to Jim Corrigan and calling him a dick. Uh, that's what they called police officers and detectives back in the day. Little uh, little vocab uh, trivia for you there. Jim is driving uh, out in the desert looks like, or out in the arid land outside the city for whatever reason, uh, when he is followed by assailants uh, sent by Bentley, obviously. And uh, Jim turns into the specter uh, as they stop him, the the assailants, they, they make him pull over. And when they open the door, it's the Spectre and not Jim. And then the Spectre has uh, some fun with these criminals. They try to shoot him. The bullets pass right through. Uh, The Spectre gets gigantic. Uh, They get very scared because this, like, paper white-skinned man wearing only, you know, trunks, uh, shoes, gloves, and a hooded cloak uh, is turning into a giant. And uh, the, the... Assassins try to drive away, but uh, obviously the specter is really big, so he can cover a lot more ground. Catches them very easily. The assassins uh, beg for mercy, and uh, the specter, being the ruthless, you know, emotionless embodiment of of God's vengeance, says, "Why? Cold-blooded killers deserve but one fate." And then he just straight up crushes the car that he has picked up in his hand just crushed it and then he hurls it while being a giant hurls it uh, and and we don't even know where it lands uh but now he feels like he's dealt with them handily enough and he's it says it's time to uh deal with bentley he rockets across the sky uh wicked fast and phases through the wall of bentley's warehouse just in time to overhear Bentley telling some more of his goons that there is a fur truck that that he wants them to hijack uh, and, and obviously deliver the furs to him so that he can sell them at, you know, uh, whatever price because it's all profit because uh, he didn't have to pay for the furs. Uh, the Spectre travels through the phone lines uh, to the other end of the phone call that Bentley was on to his man George, another bald bad guy. Uh, the bald slander will not stand. Uh, the uh, George and his the rest of his goons uh, get in their car and drive uh, along the cliff side road. Uh, I don't know where the Spectre lives, but it's, there's a lot of cliffs and arid landscapes. It's like a Roadrunner cartoon out there. 
But before they left, the specter got really tiny and snuck into George's pocket, into his suit jacket pocket. And the goons, they park their car uh, in the way of the road so that when the fur truck has to drive along the road, it can't because obviously there's a car in the way. They stop him uh, once it, or they, they not stop him. They like stick him up with guns. Uh, and, and then they throw him over a cliff, the, the truck driver. The specter obviously can't let innocents die. So he uses his magic to make the truck driver very bouncy. So when he hits the ground, he just kind of safely bounces along a bit. Uh, not not like if you could imagine dropping a bouncy ball from a cliff, how high it would bounce after it hit the ground. Not that high. We're talking he hits the ground. He then bounces like three feet and then bounces. And he stands up unharmed. And he is just very, very thankful and happy. Uh, he doesn't know the specter did it because the specter is invisible at this time. You can tell because his art the 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 outline and stuff has you know erased lines through it so he looks sort of only partially there uh the specter jumps back up onto the cliff where the uh where george and his goons or his you know underlings are deciding how to divvy up responsibilities so the goons are going to get in the trucks uh or one of the goons is going to get in the truck and the other one of the other ones is going to drive george back to bentley's warehouse but the specter, still invisible, allows George to see him, and the specter does the classic specter move, which I really like, of, of having a, a bad guy stare into his eyes, and uh, what he sees staring back at him is death, and that death, seeing death, causes the bad guy to die. So George passes out dead, but his two underlings are like, what, what is wrong with him? He was like raving about eyes, and then he... Then he died. That was weird. So they, they hop in the truck. They leave the car behind. Say the hell with the car. And they get in the truck and they drive it back to Bentley's. The The Spectre hitches a ride on top, as we've seen him do many times with car chases. He just kind of stands on top, fully, fully, you know, upright, with his hands on his hip like Superman. Uh, the two goons get back to Bentley's warehouse, and they talk to Bentley, and they say, we want our money, we did the job for you, and he says, all right, all right, just one more job, and then you can have all your money. And the job, the last job that these two goons have to do is they have to take this bomb, the special bomb, to Little's department store, and once they get there, they have to pull the pin, and then 10 minutes later, the store will, you know, explode, go up in flames. Uh, now, I don't know why he would think that destroying or, or setting on fire, doing arson on the person that you want to buy things from you is going to help because won't they, you know, if they get it, if they get the store put out, the fire put out, then that's great. But it seems like they'll have to deal with the fire damage and all that kind of stuff and they really won't have money for, you know, inventory. Uh, and it could possibly cause them to close. It just doesn't seem smart from an extortion standpoint. Really, if I was going to extort a department store, and I'm not saying that I am thinking about it, but if I was going to just extort a department store, I would get dirt on whoever is in charge of purchasing, then use that to blackmail them, and then that way extort them into 
purchasing from me, like huge orders, like with a with a nice hefty margin for me. But like I said, I'm not thinking about doing that, so no one has to worry. Uh, Bentley is a nice boss, and he drives the two goons to the department store, and he says, I'll wait here while you guys do that, and then we can, you know, make our getaway after you, you know, pull the pin and leave the bop. But as the two goons leave, Bentley, talking to himself like a normal person, says, Dim-witted fools, the moment they pull the pin out, the bomb will explode. At one blow, I'll remove their demands for money and intimidate little. This time it only has one L at the end. Huh. Typo. But, unfortunately for Bentley, sitting next to him in the car appears the Spectre. And he says, a a treacherous scheme, Bentley, but I won't permit you to execute it. And, of course, Bentley is shocked and and confused about how suddenly this scary-looking man has appeared in his car. Uh, And so the, the Spectre forces Bentley to look into his eyes, but not to see death, to put him under a hypnotic spell. And he forces Bentley to walk into the department store and find his two underlings, his two goons. And when they are all three in the same room, the Spectre forces them to freeze in place, stop what they're doing, and have their minds go blank so they don't notice the passage of time. And then the Spectre hits the police alarm, the uh, which active you know which calls the police and tells them to come to the little department store uh, to investigate an alarm going off. Uh, two police officers show up, and so does Jim Corrigan, uh, because because the Spectre wants him there. The Spectre jumps out of Jim Corrigan's body. We never saw him go back into Jim Corrigan's body, but apparently he was in there. And then the Spectre, before the police get into the room, unfreeze the three bad guys. And they begin fighting because Bentley says, don't pull the pin from that bomb. It'll explode immediately because he doesn't want to die, you know, because the goon's about to pull the pin because he's like, okay, we'll pull the pin and we'll leave. Ten minutes, we got time. Uh, The goon isn't happy about this, so he starts choking Bentley. Uh, but as uh, as Bentley is being choked, Jim Corrigan and the two police officers rush in. Uh, Jim Corrigan punches a goon and uh, then punches Bentley and then uh, arrests them both. And then in the last panel, we see Bentley saying, you'd never have gotten me if it hadn't been for a ghost that had it in for me. And Corrigan says, with a line like that, he'll probably plead insanity. And everyone laughs. Ha, 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 ha. Ha, 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 That's so funny. Uh, but uh, a good a good story of the Spectre. A uh, good Spectre story. Lots of Spectre powers and magical stuff. You know what's weird? Like, I'm so, I, I harp so much on Zatara. But, I don't know, Spectre somehow just does it better. Like, because, like, Zatara can do whatever he wants with his magic. It doesn't, there's no limits. And neither it is, neither is there limits for the Spectre. But I don't know, the Spectre just does it better. Maybe just the writing chops of, of Joe Siegel, or Jerry Siegel is just, are just better than uh, Gardner Fox in terms of, you know, magic characters. At least I think Zatara's written by Gardner Fox. Am I, am I dumb? I'm not dumb. He, it is, because Zatara's stories are written by Gardner Fox. That's what I thought. Uh, so good for me. Good for me getting it right. Uh, but let's move on 
uh, to... We would, I mean, if we were going to talk about Congo Bill, we'd talk about Congo Bill next, but I've already explained why we're not talking about Congo Bill. So let's talk about Dr. Fate. Speaking of Gardner Fox, Gardner F. Fox, uh, Dr. Fate's issue or story is written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Howard Sherman. So let's get into it. This issue starts, or I keep saying issue all the time when I mean story. This story, this Dr. Fate story, starts exactly where the last one ends. Wotan has just been thrown off a building, and Fate is wondering if he has killed him. And so Fate has decided that decided that he and Inza must travel to the land of the dead uh, and meet with the gods of Eld, the fiery ball, cruel Moloch, to save the world. So, in a puff of smoke, they transport themselves to the River Styx and meet Chiron, the ferryman of the dead. From Greek mythology. Chiron doesn't take living people famously across the River Styx. You always have to pay him or do a bargain of some kind if you know anything about Greek mythology. Uh, But... Fate flexes his magical powers and says that fate goes where he wills. And so uh, Chiron will take him uh, across the River Styx. They, uh, Inza and Dr. Fate are then at the seven gates of the regions of dead souls, each made of a different material, iron, copper, silver, gold, for whatever reason, the unknown gray metal, whatever that one is, it, someone made it. They have to know what it's made out of. Alabaster, and then the final one, Emerald. After going through all of these doors, they stand at the Stair of Judgment, and at the top is Wisdom, who rules the world. Huh, yeah, right. <laughs> wisdom. Uh, if you've met anyone, you know that's not true. Uh, they walk up the stairs. It takes them a while, a lot of, a lot of steps. Get They, they get their, uh, their step goals, their, their flights of stairs climbed in a day for their Fitbit. And once they reach the top, they speak with wisdom, and they search for the soul of a dead man, Wotan, to know if he is truly dead or if he escaped death. Uh, Wisdom says that, you know, he knows, that, or they know, it knows, they, they know, that uh, Dr. Fate speaks of Wotan, and they say he is not here. But I shall show you him. And uh, then we see Wotan in a laboratory, which then made me kind of think, but wait a minute, I thought Wotan was a magic guy. Why is he in a laboratory? Why is he doing science? But he's alive. Wotan is alive. That's the important part. So then Dr. Fate and Inza then travel back through all the things they just went through. They go down the stairs, they go through all seven gates, they go back across the river, and then they're transported back to Earth, not where they left, because they left in, a, in the middle of a city, presumably New York City. Uh, they're in the middle of the wilderness. Uh, and as they are back on Earth, uh, an earthquake hits where they're at. And... Dr. Fate senses that this is Wotan's doing, that he's using some sort of uh, electrical energy to increase the magnetic flow between the poles. Uh, and, and what this will do is it will uh, blow up the world. And this was just a test, Dr. Fate can tell. But 
when he actually when Wotan actually does this, he will uh, blow up the the Earth with an increased electrical flow, just like an elect an extra load of electricity blows a fuse. So, yeah. So Doctor Fate and Inza rush, and uh, we then cut to Wotan, and he's in his in this laboratory, and there's a big globe, and he's gonna do a little test on this globe to make sure that his his you know plan will work. Which it's a dumb plan. It's a really dumb plan because he's like, I'm gonna blow up the Earth because we'll, we'll come back to that one second. He's going to do a test on this globe, and uh, he does. He increases the uh, the electrical flow between the poles of this globe, and the globe explodes. Great. Good for him. And he's like, thus ends the Earth. So we'll leave him for a second, um, and we'll cut back to Dr. Fate and Inza. Dr. Fate needs to find Wotan, but he doesn't know where he's at. And so he says that he must commune with the elder intellects to learn where Wotan is. Uh, a big eagle uh, appears uh, in front of Dr. Fate and says, Follow me, Dr. Fate. Uh, and, and the eagle says, Ahead of you is the home of Wotan. You must destroy him. He has gone mad. So then we cut back to Wotan. And now he's going to explain his plan. He's going to get revenge on Dr. Fate. By increasing the magnetic force between the poles, which will cause the entire Earth to blow up under the strain of, of the, you know, the two magnets either repelling each other or, you know, being attracted to each other. And uh, thus, Dr. Fate shall die and the world be no more destroyed by me, Wotan the Wonderful, which is a new epithet that I did not know that he had. But um, this is just a bad plan. And I and I, I don't know if you could tell by the sound of my voice, but I'm like rubbing my forehead and my eyes in sort of exasperation about how bad this plan is. Because Wotan, you've said nothing about what you're going to do. Isn't this basically just like mass homicide plus suicide? Because you're gonna die. You'll die too, and you'll have no Earth to live on. It just doesn't really make any sense. It's it's a bad plan, Wotan. So. Uh, I hope that Dr. Fate can stop you from yourself. Save you from yourself, really. Dr. Fate and Inza uh, find Wotan's house. It's a very fancy, kind of very modern house. It's got a lot of rounded edges. It, um, it's, is New Age the proper turn? I don't know, but there's lots of big windows. I bet it gets great light. It's on top of a mountain, so great location uh, if you like mountains. Uh, the drive to the grocery store, though, is pretty bad, so buy in bulk. Uh, Dr. Fate, in order to, you know, get to Wotan, is going to blast his house to smithereens, which he does. He blasts the outside of uh, Wotan's house just to, just to well, like, uh, in incinerates it or, like, uh, dematerializes it. Basically, it's gone. And Wotan is then like, what? My house? Dr. Fate, why'd you do that? And uh, Dr. Fate says, Dr. Fate says, It is I, Wotan. I come to demand a last accounting from you. And he's like, okay, well, here's my, 
here's my ledger, and you can see that I've balanced it correctly. My, I, uh, this quarter, we're going to have a $100,000 profit at Wotan Inc. Not that kind of accounting. Uh, Wotan says, no, you can't stop me. And so he's about to pull the lever to activate the increased electrical flow, magnet increase of the poles of the Earth, uh, enact his dumb plan. And then uh, Wotan kind of cries a little bit about how for years Dr. Fate has stopped him in his pursuits of evil, uh, always, always balking him. And now Wotan wins, and he's going to destroy the world and Dr. Fate. Inza lunges, because she is tough. She's a tough, confident, strong lady. She rushes at Wotan to stop him. But before she can get there, Wotan pulls the lever, but nothing happens. Nothing happens. And you're wondering, did Wotan cross some wires? Did he get his you know calculations wrong or anything? Nope. Dr. Fate, uh, because he experienced that experiment earlier, the test on, on sort of the Earth, you know, a ways away when they got back from the land of the dead, he identified the energy that Wotan was using, and so he used, Dr. Fate used his internal energy, uh, presumably from the helmet of Naboo, uh, to uh, counteract it. Uh, and so while Wotan was crying about vengeance and stuff, he uh, deactivated or neutralized the energy that Wotan was going to use uh, to blow up the Earth. Uh, Dr. Fate then says, I've wanted to manhandle you for a long time while punching Wotan in the face. Just a lot of, uh, we had, you know, like Papa Spank earlier, and now we've got Dr. Fate wanting to manhandle Wotan. It's just a lot of, a lot of, um, colorful language in this, uh, episode of the podcast. Uh, and then he gives him a second punch for the world that he was going to blow up. And then finally, uh, Dr. Fate blows open a hole in the earth and uh, puts Wotan in sort of a magical trance and encases him in a subterranean air bubble uh, hidden beneath the earth so that um, he can't escape and he'll never wake up and cause any more problems. And that's the end of the Dr. Fate uh, story. Only six pages for Dr. Fate as of now. Uh, I'm sure as superheroes start to get more and more popular, even more popular than they even are at this time, he'll get more pages, but only six pages this time for Dr. Fate. Uh, and that's going to be that's gonna be the last story we cover. This is the last issue, just two, because like I said, Batman number one was chock-a-block full. Uh, so... That's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Remember to reach out uh, to us on our socials. The links are in the podcast description. Shout out to Mike at Amazing World, uh, Mike's Amazing World of Comics. R.I.P. Uh, you, you know you're you're a good one. You're a real you're a real one, Mike. Uh, thank you for your wonderful site uh, and, and Mike's family as well. Uh, Rate the podcast on iTunes and Spotify and whatever. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. Uh, blackmail your enemies into listening, downloading, and reviewing the podcast. And um, until next time, uh, we'll, I'll talk to you all again on Friday for the next episode of Issue by Issue Crisis. But until then, I'm your host, Nick Byers, and see you later. Mm-hmm.